Physics Day, everyone. Happy New Year. Welcome to Physics Alive. I'm Brad Moser, and I want to help fellow educators spark new life into the physics classroom. Each episode, I'll draw inspiration from teachers, researchers, and science communicators. I hope you enjoy. No, no, don't worry. Your host hasn't suddenly reverted back to childhood. That's my little boy of three and a half years giving you a physics and New Year's greeting. I had him chime in for my first episode of 2021 as well, so this may be a fun little tradition. How will he sound next year? What about in the year 2030? Will this podcast still be zipping along then? If the fates allow. But just so you hear it from me as well, good physics day everyone, and indeed, happy new year. Today, I'm having a conversation that I've personally been looking forward to since I started the podcast. To speak with one's friend and mentor is always a privilege especially since I no longer get to do so with such frequency as in the past. Today, I'm speaking with Jamie Visenka, professor of physics at the University of New England. I was dunked into the pool with this excellent fella for two weeks at a modeling instruction workshop in 2010, and then I joined him for eight years at UNE as a colleague and friend. We'll reminisce about some of our successes during those years, so I'll save more for that conversation. He's been using modeling instruction in the classroom and leading workshops for over 20 years and was an early pioneer in the physics for life sciences world, while also staying active in atomic force microscopy research. We'll talk a little bit about the basics of modeling instruction in physics for life science, but really, I wanted to dial in on his role as a teacher's teacher and learn from those experiences. Here we go. Jamie, welcome to Physics Alive, and thank you so much for speaking with me today. Thank you for inviting me, Bradley. It has It is a pleasure and an honor, actually, to be on this. Uh, I've listened to some of your podcasts, and they are fantastic. I, I've really learned a lot, so I'm really delighted to have the opportunity to be interviewed today. Awesome. So I often like to start with a moment of gratitude to think about an important mentor. And when the tables were flipped and I was interviewed during the AAPT Florida section meeting this past October, I spoke of you as an individual who has made an incredible impact on my career, helping to shape the direction I've gone and being a caring presence to share joys and struggles with. And even though we're not at the same institution anymore, I feel like we can still do that today from a distance. Uh, so I'm really interested to hear who has been an important mentor in your life and career, because they're, I guess, kind of like a, a grand mentor to me, uh, and, and what role they've played in shaping your path. That is an interesting question. Uh, I would like to briefly share with you a couple people who really inspired me mm -hmm. um, to get into physics. I'll, I'll make it really fast. Uh, my high school physics teacher, Mr. Martin, who lamented that the only style of physics instruction available at high school at the time was to read from books and plug and chug. And um, he was he was very disappointed that he couldn't do um, justice to the subject matter, which he loved so much. Um, in college, I had a professor experimentalist called uh, by the name of Christoph Hohenemser, and a uh, really, really smart guy who did perturbed angular correlations. As a graduate student, 
probably the most important professor I had was Glenn Erickson, a uh, theorist in quantum electrodynamics. Uh, he would he was a contemporary of Richard Feynman, um, and he had the patience to have me take his mathematical physics course twice. The second time, I was also the teaching assistant, and I was a teaching assistant for a third time because I recognized my mathematical physics was so weak. But when it actually comes down to a, um, a mentor, uh, I don't know if you're going to like this answer, but the, I did more, I got more feedback and more useful um, training in physics instruction from you and Paul Bologna. So your grand mentor is yourself. And so we, 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 we definitely have one of these special relativity uh, weirdness things going on right now. I'm, I apologize for that. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I learned so much from you guys. And I, I was like, oh, this inspired me to try this thing and to try this thing. And, and, you know, to, try to tweak the instruction in order to be more effective. And that's why when we suddenly had uh, changes, um, you moved on to Hamilton and Paul moved on to uh, greener pastures, that became really difficult. And I was back in the situation where I was training colleagues uh, how to do remote instruction and things like that. So, um, but I, I would have to say that I probably learned my most uh, in terms of uh, effective instruction when I was working with you two folks? You know, there's, I, well, when I joined the University of New England uh, originally, there was, I definitely had that feel of a, like a super team that came together with, with Paul there and you and Dean Megason. And there was all this experience, but all this willingness to to collaborate and to learn from each other. And that was something that was definitely something really special. Yeah, and I'm glad you actually mentioned Dean. Um, I don't know if you're aware about this, but he passed away. Yeah, yeah. I did. I did hear that. Yeah, and it's sorry, <laughs> bit emotional there. Sorry, folks. Um, yeah, he he really was uh, unusual in that he was in the later years of his career as a physics teacher and he found this modeling instruction and he said oh my god where have this been all my life and he really mm. he was able to make it work for him and uh it's a he's an extraordinary person um and i do miss him too because uh, we had many interesting war stories to share <laughs> <laughs> oh man so I'm always curious how researchers and educators find their way into education reform. So more often than not, folks start off in a more traditional research field, but are then drawn into education. So digging back through your research record, I find research in biophysics of antifreeze glycoprotein inhibition of ice crystal formation using dynamic light scattering as your PhD work at the University of California, Davis. And after a couple of postdocs, also in the realm of biophysics, you spent four years at California State University, Fresno, before heading off to UNE. You've remained active in biophysics research this whole time, particularly atomic force microscopy. In fact, you're, you're doing that on sabbatical right now. But you are equally active in education research. It seems to be in Fresno that something happened. 
What drew you to education research and even more specifically than modeling instruction? Yeah, um, that's an interesting story. <laughs> and it's one that is so clearly burnt into my psyche. Um, I, uh, we, we had at Fresno State back then, every Friday afternoon, we had a colloquium. And uh, we would invite physicists from the entire area to come visit. And every now and then when we had something that was a little bit more education related or climate science related or not really detailed theoretical work, basically, um, uh, local high school teachers would join us. And there was one local high school teacher by the name of Jerry Bodily. Um, he was at Fowler High School. And um, he kept on saying, you know, Jamie, you should really come and try out because he, he was aware of the fact at the time I was using the uh, force concepts inventory to try to mm. assess my students to find out if this instruction, which, as I said, it was largely me just um, prior to UNE, I was I figured things out by myself. And after doing these force concepts inventory assessments, I was spending so much time and effort in my introductory course, which was one of the very few times that students at the end of the semester actually stood up and clapped because I thought I had done a really great job. Mm -hmm. I discovered that they were getting post-test scores no better than a colleague who came in three times a week to teach his 50-minute class who spent no more than 10 minutes reviewing his previous notes, did not use mm. any demonstrations, got done and left. His students got the exact same results and my jaw had dropped and I was just trying mm -hmm. to figure things out. And Jerry Bodley says, you know, Jamie, come and take one of these half day modeling workshops that I give here at Fowler High School. You, you can see what you what you get out of it. So finally, I, you know, nothing else had been working. And I'd, I'd been there at Fresno State for three years. And I took uh, several graduate students and I brought them um, out to Fowler High School. And we sat in on this half-day workshop. It was on uh, Newton's second law, <clears throat> modified Atwood's machine. And I saw how they were collecting data, plotting it, and building this, these models to explain what was going on. And they started to use some tools I'd never seen before. One of them, this was this really amazing tool that I said, oh, I got to bring this into our labs. It's called the whiteboard. And... <laughs> uh, yes. Anyways, we were drawing combinations. I'd never seen this done before of force diagrams, which... Yeah, I've seen force diagrams, uh, free body diagrams. But they also added on top of that something else called a motion map, uh, which was a snapshot at equal inst instance of time mm -hmm. of what was happening to the object. So uh, in this very low friction environment, approximately constant acceleration, we were drawing these force diagrams and acceleration vectors. And um, we were asked to go ahead and draw it for the object being pulled across the uh, table and also the object that the, um, at the end of the pulley that was pulling it down, the weight, okay? And um, 
and they said, you know, draw the forces on it, draw your acceleration vectors. And I said, sure, I can do this. I was so gung ho with my group and I drew these because I, I, I love to draw. You know, I've always I always enjoyed drawing. And so I try was trying to draw these things all to scale. And so we have the big mass up on top and the little mass that's um, being pulled down by the Earth uh, attached to the string, which is attached to the mass on top. And I drew my my force vector on top and my acceleration vector which because it's a big mass it was a big acceleration vector and the little mass that's being pulled down i draw the force vector on it and a little acceleration vector because it's a little mass <laughs> and i was asked to present and so i presented because i thought you i've got this you know jerry bodily started asking these socratic questions so hmm. how is it that this one over here is speeding up more slowly than one on top. And I had this thing that we call modeling instruction called my aha moment. <laughs> and I realized that, oh, I had made a horrible, nonsensical uh, assumption that the sum of the forces was constant when in fact they were different for the big mass than the small mass. And, and you can easily show that for a non-friction environment, it's the the big mass, it's all tension, whereas for the small mass, it's the difference between tension and the weight on it. And of course, that's the reason why they end up having the same acceleration. And I just like, oh my goodness, I could learn more about this. So make a long story short, I've talked too long. I enrolled immediately that following summer um, in, uh, it was phase three of Arizona State University National Science Foundation grant to learn about model instruction. And I was there for five weeks. Yes, oh, it was boy. it was intensive. I was one of two PhDs, and I think I was the only um, college professor there at the time because it was actually designed mm -hmm. for high school students. But they were happy to break out of their mold a little bit and get college people involved. And then it was a two-year program. I came back the following year after we did mechanics, and I, I did learn a lot. It made me much more competent in uh, mechanics. And the following year, it came back and they worked on waves. And we built some modules for waves that are still being used today in the by the modeling uh, uh, groups across the country. So anyways, that is how I got uh, into it. Wow. So you got bit by just a, a half-day workshop. That's Yes, that is absolutely correct. I, I guess, the, I mean, there's a, I, I understand the idea of that aha moment because I remember, I mean, first of all, taking the FCI myself for the first time, I think, when I was at the workshop. And, you know, you know, I just finished my, my PhD and I thought, well, you know, it's mechanics. I'll, I'll, I should be able to get a perfect on this. I remember I got <laughs> four wrong and it, it drove me batty. It's like, wait, what? Like that, that didn't sit well with me. And then as we were doing the experiments in the workshop itself, realizing all of the, the misconceptions I still harbored or, or the preconceptions I was still working with, or, or that my resources needed to be to, um, I needed to apply them a little bit differently. And yeah, it was, it was such a meaningful experience mm -hmm. for me. Cause you, you built um, a consistent framework. I had this hodgepodge of ideas and then modeling it made it all was like, Oh yeah, that now everything fits together and, and having a good solid mechanics foundation, incredibly helpful when it goes into all other um, directions in physics. 
So jumping into some of the um, workshop stuff a little bit. So a statement on your LinkedIn page says, Master Physics Modeling Instructor since 1999. So it sounds like, first of all, you got into uh, being a modeling instructor pretty quickly after you you had your first mm -hmm. training yourself. Uh, and that you've trained over 500 physical science instructors and run one to two workshops every year, including modeling instruction workshops in mm -hmm. Kennebunk, Maine. And I'm pleased to be one among mm -hmm. that group, taking two weeks of workshops with you and Mike Waters in 2010, just weeks before my first full mm -hmm. year of teaching. And this was, it was such a, pivotal workshop to start my career. It was, as I was saying, an eye-opening experience. It was a joyful experience. It was an intense dunk into modeling, although maybe not quite so much as five weeks. And we might be talking about some more of this along the way, but uh, I, I think modeling workshops are a model of success for professional mm -hmm. development. Um, but we'll, we'll pause on that for a moment. I want to make sure my listeners know what modeling okay. instruction is. So what's your five minute introduction to what modeling instruction <laughs> is all about and maybe describe what a sample week of class looks like? Because I think those kind of okay. go together. Hmm. Five minutes. How about yep. modeling is an evidence-based, hands-on, guided inquiry uh, approach to having students construct physics understanding based on simple paradigm laboratories that help them to convert physical situations into concepts and multi-representational mental models, which they can then apply to solve real problems. Is that a paragraph or a sentence? <laughs> <laughs> Does that count? <laughs> that, that counts. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's all those things. I, I think one of the most important things that Hessner's pointed out is this evidence-based portion, especially in, in the current world we live, where people's opinions are trying to supplement uh, or supplant, I should say, evidence. And you know, we take what the students actually collect, and we say, so what does the evidence tell you? And that's you know, that's your first part of it. And the other thing is they're doing it. That's the hands-on. And me or any of our my colleagues who are in the classroom, we're, we're guiding it. You know, you've heard the say, uh, saying, not the sage on the stage, but the guide on the side. That's exactly what we're doing. We're trying mm -hmm. to get the kids to construct the understanding based on this evidence using simple simple act lab activities it's one of the things that a lot of physicists sometimes get concerned about is we don't cover that much stuff and it turns out having a deeper mm. dive into basic stuff is oftentimes much more productive than covering a bunch of little areas all the way around and um so we stick to simple laboratories and of uh, physical situations, we try to get the kids to get these mental pictures and then find different ways of representing it. So they collect the data, they make graphs. From the graphs, uh, we, we focus often on linear types of graphs. And we use the equation y equals mx plus b. I don't even have to say that. Every single student, every single student knows that equation of a straight line. But then we take the information from the graph. So you said, uh, give an example. 
And the example that um, we love to use is the constant velocity vehicle, okay? We'll plot position on the vertical axis and time on the horizontal axis, and you, you'll get a nice constant straight line, okay? And um, what is the slope all, is all about? What is the intercept all about? Well, it's the physical parameters that describe the system. The slope is related to, is the velocity, and the intercept is related to where you started. And you can change y equals mx plus b into the position of the cart in meters. Remember, we, we're, we always remind students we're doing physics, not math. So we want units and is equal to this slope, which is velocity, with appropriate units and times the independent variable time um, with appropriate units plus our initial position. And then we have them say, okay, what happens if we change the direction? What will happen to this graph? And the slope becomes, it goes from positive negative or negative positive, indicating traveling in a different direction. And, make some predictions of where it's going to be at a certain amount of times. And they have this opportunity now to actually apply the model that they've developed. And on top of that, um, present it in other ways. And this is where this idea of a motion map comes in uh, previously. Uh, not terribly exciting when it comes to constant velocity particle, but boy, I'll tell you, it is super helpful when you're dealing with situations in which the velocity mm. is not constant. Very, very neat to throw in your acceleration vectors on top of that. It's interesting because I, I spoke with um, Rick Moog, uh, Rick Moog about um, Pogel instruction a couple episodes ago, and so much of your definition of modeling mimicked what the definition of Pogel instruction was until you got to this idea of the paradigm lab. So they they look at um, examples mm -hmm. of data. In order to to build to build their models to the their concepts, but it's not necessarily it's not lab driven in in that way. So I think there there comes a, a distinction, and and Pogel doesn't have to be a, I think a full classroom methodology where modeling often go whole hog and say I like this is how the entire class is going to be run for the entire year to maintain that consistency and that ability to. I mean, as, as they see lab after lab in the similar format, there's, you can build the complexity of the labs. Well, the physics does that anyway, uh, but they get, the students get better and better at interpreting and developing models and yeah, interpreting the data and, and making sense of more and more complex slopes. So um, that, that's an interesting piece of, of, of modeling that separates it from, from something like Pogol and some of the other constructivist approaches yeah. out there. And, and a lot of those other constructive pro approaches oftentimes will will say that, yeah, modeling was an inspiration, but it doesn't work hmm. in our particular environment. We need to do something different and they tweak it. And that, that makes perfect sense. You know, and that's, that's one of the things that I, I really firmly believe in that you have to find what's going to work for your classroom. And I think this is a good one for where we're currently at, but I'm not sure if it works everywhere. So instead of kind of picking apart modeling instruction itself for the, mm -hmm. the episode, because um, I, I feel like I can, I'll be able to do that over the course of, of years with the podcast or just say, if you're interested, mm -hmm. go to a workshop, um, which I'll have you talk about towards the end. Uh, but I want to spend some time talking about the workshops mm -hmm. themselves, because for, for me, it was a two week immersion experience, which 
covered the mechanics curriculum from constant velocity through kinematics, dynamics, momentum, and energy. Uh, but, but here was the key for me. There was no lecture. We, the attendees, we did the curriculum. We did the labs. We wrote the whiteboards. We partook in these board meetings. And all throughout, we attendees and you and Mike as workshop facilitators, you weaved in and out of the teacher-student role and stepping back as colleagues to discuss the big picture elements and the fine day-to-day -day details. Is, is this essentially how all workshops are run? Was this kind of built in by the modeling community from the start? Well, that's a really interesting question. Um, I know that I have heard said that new faculty often teach the way that they were taught. That's, you know, what experiences do they have? Mm -hmm. um, I will say that that's how, you know, the workshop that you experienced was indeed the kind of uh, experience that I have, you know, albeit truncated, you know, a fewer weeks than um, what I experienced. But yes, uh, the idea was specifically to have the instructors model how we wanted you to behave, the, the participants. Mm -hmm in their classrooms, which is to have the students construct uh, um, understanding based on the evidence that they collected. And I will tell you, it doesn't work for all students. There's a lot of students mm. who are not enthusiastic about this because they just want to know the answer. Are you talking about the students in the classroom or the, the students who are taking the workshop? Uh, yeah, uh, they will not. Don't all yeah, get on I'm board. talking about the students who um, are in the classroom. Uh, the students in the workshop, um, we oftentimes will, if we have a particularly clever participant, ask them to be the intransigent student intentionally uh, <laughs> to go ahead and say, no, no, I don't believe this, and have the other participants attempt to go ahead and ask the questions that would help them maybe have them re-examine the information that they have and uh, attempt to you know, address any kinds of misunderstandings that they have. I, I don't like to use the term misconception because it's not always correct. It could be alternate, mm -hmm. alternative conceptions. Um, but nevertheless, to try to get them to you know, take what's the evidence actually saying? You know, is it saying what you uh, claim? And then from that evidence, what can you eventually come up with? And uh, so that's that is part and parcel of a, a good workshop is to try to give you the participants an experience that they will potentially see in their own classrooms. I, I know there's a, a tendency. So we're seeing the research and and knowing this the strength of active learning where the students are doing a lot of the work. It's like we know its value, and yet at the same time, if you um, if we go to a faculty as faculty if we go to a conference we're we're happy to just mm -hmm. sit back and listen and and think we're gaining something and i think for me that's often not true so i but i found with the the modeling workshop like you didn't have that choice there was no just mm -hmm. sitting back and listening you were a full participant so i i imagine that that uh participants taking the workshop you know have to quickly get into mm -hmm. that mindset um of it's like i'm i'm the student and i'm going to see active learning in action here. I, I'm not going to see it. I'm going to be part of it. And and maybe we learn some lessons too about how is it that we can motivate our students for that too. And, and that's something I've appreciated more in the last few years that you can often hear this, uh, this complaint from students that we had to teach ourselves. Mm -hmm. It's like, you're not teaching us, you're making us teach ourselves. 
And, and I think there's a, it, it's a, a misunderstanding of what it is that we're trying to do. And it behooves us to explain our rationale, to, to get, to get buy-in for that. And I know the modeling curriculum and, and materials actually comes with uh, PowerPoint slides and things like that to help buy-in for not just students, but parents and administration and all that. So, uh, so that, that seems to be an, an, a really important mm -hmm. aspect. Get the students mm -hmm. on board. Yeah, perhaps we'll talk about that more. From your years of leading workshops, what do you see as some of the common challenges that instructors face or some of the mindsets, mindsets they need to adopt to go from, say, a more traditional mode of teaching, such as lecture, to something ah. like modeling? I think we will be talking about this some more. This was an interesting experience I had out in California. New teachers oftentimes, especially in California, if they had one year of physics instruction, they might be the only person in their school <laughs> with any physics background. Mm. And mm. guess what? Wow. <laughs> that 10,000 hour thing or 10 years, it's a real thing. If you don't have that kind of experience, um, you you'll struggle and um, by having them take this workshop usually you can get even though it's not going to be you know it's only ends up being if it's a couple weeks long maybe for 80 or 120 hours um, it helps a lot though it helps set a really firm foundation for them so that's one of their biggest challenges is, is actually understanding the subtleties of the content for experienced mm -hmm. teachers, it can be a challenge for the energy required. It does take a lot of work. It is mm, very, yeah. very time consuming. And I did find that when I, I ran a, I, I, one year I actually ran East Coast, West Coast workshops. The East Coast, the West Coast ones were all very young teachers, very inexperienced. The West, uh, the East Coast ones were much older teachers, closer to retirement. And at least half of them said afterwards, I love this. This is great stuff, but I can't do it in my classroom because I just don't have the energy or time. <laughs> it's like, oh, mm. thank you very much. <laughs> oh, well. Anyways, either end of the teaching spectrum, this comes up to a point that you had just brought up, is the um, intransigent students, those who feel they are not learning because they're not being fed the answers to the questions that they ask. And they can make life very difficult for teachers. In fact, one of my earliest mm. PR papers was, do please be very careful when you're doing this kind of instruction. You know, make sure that the parents understand. Make sure you're constantly telling the students why you're doing what you're doing and the administration. Have everybody lined up. That way, when somebody's... Uh, often students get out of line and start causing trouble, you can say, hey, we've, you know, we've all talked about this in advance. Let's bring you back to the fold. So there are a lot of approaches that one can take in the physics classroom. And as this podcast moves forward, I hope to talk with many of the folks who helped develop or are committed practitioners of interactive lessons, pedagogical frameworks, and everything in between. Uh, and I want to help listeners pick and choose what works for them, what works for their classroom and their temperament. Why have you stuck with modeling all these years? And then maybe say a little bit about where modeling works best and what environments uh, may be challenging to get it off the ground. Yeah, modeling really is composed of lots of successful 
instructional tools. Um, they don't claim to be developing <laughs> a lot of their own things. Uh, you know, for example, we we embrace Socratic dialogue. I, I think Socrates would probably be pretty happy that several thousand years after he, <laughs> um, you know, he developed the style of uh, questioning students that we use it in the classroom. Um, we borrow heavily on any kind of an effective instruction. And, and that's why actually when I first saw it, I said, oh, this is great. We get to use the best bits of all sorts of different things. This ranking tasks and things like that were developed by Van Hoovelen and company and, and the use of sensors that had just become popular that was uh, the verniers were starting to commercially make available computer assisted uh, data collection and all these types of things here just were cobbled together in order to make a, a style that was um, designed specifically to address you know initially mechanics and and there's this learning cycle which is not by any means uh, new to uh, modeling instruction, the, the learning cycle in which you go ahead and you define operational definitions and you make sure that everybody is communicating on the same wavelength. And then you start with, okay, let's ex examine a specific problem, paradigm problem. And uh, we collect data on it and we try to represent it multiple different ways. And then we test it. You know, We see if this models that you've developed works. And if it doesn't work, you refine it. And if it does work, you go ahead and apply it. And eventually you go ahead and assess yourselves and 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 all those types of good things. But the point about this is, is that the, the learning cycle here comes back to, I think, a physicist. I'm blanking on the name right now. Maybe you can... Uh, Carpalus, thank you. Robert Carpalus. Yeah, Robert yeah. was the name I can remember. Yeah, he developed in the 1960s. <laughs> so mm -hmm. bottom line is, yeah, we use bits and pieces from many different uh, types of uh, developments. I like it because, frankly, it is pretty algorithmic. Um, you you follow a specific recipe every single time. Um, what often frustrates students is this: they're they're learning, they're building this understanding, and they don't get it. And you have to constantly remind them why this is a useful skill set for them to have in order to make good decisions. Ultimately, that's uh, one of the most important lessons that you get out of this. You you go ahead and collect your own evidence and you make good decisions based on the evidence that you've collected. It is very algorithmic and so therefore you can get uh, follow after you've uh, conquered one particular concept, you can move on to another one, and then you choose the concepts that you like to cover. I like it perhaps best because one of the biggest weaknesses for our students has always been their inability to connect math models to reality. And that's what I always found from modeling instruction. These linear equations mm the students would actually collect the data, they would get a straight line and they say, oh, this is the relationship between the output based on the input. If, for example, if you take bottles of soda, of 
different diameter and you cut the bottoms off of it and you make them sealed so that they will, when you immerse them in water, they'll hold air. You will notice that as the radius gets bigger, the force isn't linear with that. It goes as the square of the radius. Well, that makes perfect sense because it's actually, it's linear with the area. And when you plot force versus area, you get a straight line as long as you immerse each bottle to the same depth. And it's like, oh, wow, what shall we define that slope of force per area? And we'll say, we'll give it a name. We'll call it pressure. And, you know, it's quite cool. And that depth, which is a constant, ends up being hydrostatic pressure. And so you're building models and equations and relationships that just aren't magic, just aren't things that you've thrown up on the board, on a lecture board. You're actually having the students construct it from first principles. And I really like that. I've always found that to be a rather productive tool. Um, as far as where it might not work, um, yeah, if you've got very sophisticated kids, you're going to have to look at more sophisticated models. And um, because they may get bored of the very, very basic ones. And that, and that makes perfect sense. And you, you may be able to do a whole lot more with them because they'll, they'll embrace this particular aspect in such a short amount of time. It's like, okay, what shall we do next? Then you can do deployment activities, which we oftentimes don't have much time to do, which are really a lot of fun. Yeah. A deployment activity is where you say, okay, we've developed these models. Let's go ahead and try to use them to solve something cool. For example, the kiss the egg laboratory where you have a spring constant mm -hmm. and a height between the bottom of a, way, a, a, a weight and the top of an egg. How much mass do you have to put on that stand, that is to say the weight, so that when you release it, the spring will stretch out just enough so it touches the top of the egg. And that, that's a fun deployment activity, those kinds of things. So there are ways to make it interesting for the more sophisticated palette. Um, but then there are cases where it just doesn't cover the right amount of territory necessary for, let's say, for engineers and things like that. So there's there's other types of mm -hmm. uh, scenarios of instruction in particular where maybe this is not the best way to go. But for our students, it, it's been a very good one. It's definitely a piece that I want to explore with, with, with looking at many of these different types of pedagogies or even certain types of activities. It's like, what, like what works? Um, where does it work and where doesn't it work? You know, I had an interesting conversation with, with Dawn Meredith, the University of New Hampshire. She was talking about modeling instruction and their attempt to do it at UNH, and it really didn't work. Part of it was the larger classroom was challenging, but also a lot of it was because they were working with a lot of, you know, if you have a larger classroom, it's more of a scale-up model, and now you're working with teaching assistants or learning assistants, and now you have to do this training for them over and over again, and it's it's too hard to train a new batch every mm -hmm. single year. And so they found it was it was challenging, and she was, I, I feel like she felt a little almost like a little embarrassed that she had to, that she had to say that, but it, I thought it was, it was so valuable to learn. Uh, and we framed it in the idea of sort of learning from not mistakes, but learning where things don't work as well and why they don't work so that we can help teachers find what, what's going to work mm -hmm. best for them. Yeah. No, finding what works for your audience is it's, it's an important trick especially the most effective in terms of, let's say you have some kind of assessment afterwards that can determine whether or not you're getting anywhere. So, so we could end right here, 
we probably should because it's already been recording for 50 minutes here. But uh, there's another piece that I want to at least talk about a, a little bit because it's been such an important mm -hmm. piece for you over the years. Because you've gone in and taken modeling in a new direction. I mean, mm -hmm. it's still modeling, but new curriculum. You're you're part of the Introductory Physics for Life Sciences, the IPLS community, with a particular emphasis on teaching fluids. That That's where you've put a lot of um, research energy, which, by the way, of course, is totally rubbed off on me for anybody who's listened to some of my episodes and seen the publications that I've been part of. Uh, so as I'm prepping right now for teaching physics two for pre-health professionals majors this semester, for instance, I've dropped all of magnetism and induction in favor of about four weeks of nice. fluid physics. So how did you get started with that? Why fluids? What was the motivation there? Interesting question and interesting start. David Vernier had just come out with a barometric pressure sensor, and he was mentioning how they had I used it with his the logger pro is that correct the the device that collects data mm -hmm. um to stick it out the window of a car and notice as you went faster and faster that the pressure went down <laughs> and i said what a cool uh, activity i wonder how we could do that in the lab and that's when i came up with the idea oh they've got these little tubes that attach to them we'll just swing those around in circles and the faster you swing them the grayer the pressure drop. And sure enough, it worked exactly well. It was, a, it was a demonstration of the Bernoulli principle. And I made this density of air lab and I I submitted it to Vernier and I actually got one of these little teaching award things that allowed me to go to a NSTA um, conference. And it was it was a lot of fun. Um, and uh, but I quickly discovered that there were some issues with that. Um, this notion of getting from the Bernoulli principle, in this case, the density of the air, there were some problems associated with it. It was very highly technique driven. Um, the the error bars were spectacular when the students did it. Um, but <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> more importantly, as I looked more into Bernoulli to try to explain a whole bunch of situations, for example, let's take uh, the beach ball and the leaf blower, and you're blowing a beach ball overhead and you let it go at an angle so almost all the air um, is going over the top of the beach ball and still it stays levitated. And I said, oh, let's use this information in order to um, predict, you know, um, show that we're exactly balancing the force due to gravity on the beach ball. Um, do you know how fast leaf blowers blow air out of them approximately? They, they, it comes out at a hundred and about a hundred miles an hour, 110 miles an hour. Um, the reason why that's a good number is it ends up being about approximately 50 meters per second. And you can go ahead and apply Bernoulli's relationship to it on a 40 centimeter diameter sphere for a beach ball. And you should be able to pick up a beach ball that has a mass of 15 kilograms. <laughs> uh, so I discovered that mm, some of the things that Bernoulli was being applied to didn't make any sense. Um, so what we did from there, as I realized, is like, well, what is actually explaining some of these things? And I started looking at the circulatory system and realized, oh, we need to really be using the Poissoules law, or sometimes called the Hogg and Poissoules law, in our classroom uh, analysis, and talk about viscosity, and eventually, of course, to get this notion of when does Bernoulli apply and when does Hagen-Poisson apply, and that's of course when you get to Reynolds number. 
So anyways, um, that was the reason why we got to fluids because ultimately it is what the uh, introductory physics for the life scientist really needs. Is it challenging to adapt these new labs to modeling? Um, and whether or not it is, have you had some successes and maybe <laughs> <Yeah>. some flops? <laughs> well, honestly, that Bernoulli lab, which I thought was so brilliant, uh, in the hands of a you know competent experimentalist, it works great. In the hands of the average student, <laughs> not so good. <laughs> so yeah, um, I, I realize that uh, yeah we 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 need to revisit it. But part of it's motivation, you know. Uh, you you got to get the students if they're going to go ahead and spend time figuring out this particular relationship, they have to have some reason why they would care to use it afterwards. And, hmm. you know, that mm -hmm. that's why the circulatory system problem is uh, ultimately a very nice one, because, yeah, m m we have a lot of students who are taking AP and it it's it's a, something that they will actually glom onto because it's 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 important for their careers. Interestingly enough, there is a lab that you did once at UNE, which I would like to revisit now, now that I have motivation. You may recall for a while we were exploring elasticity in a big way, and partly because this is what we had seen from other people's work was uh, considered important. But I'm not exactly sure if we had the right motivation. We looked at the Young's modulus of marshmallow. Remember yes. that laboratory? Oh, yeah, I remember that one. Yeah. And, yeah, it's, well, it's like, so... Why is this good? You get this Young's modulus when you're all done? And what's it useful for? Well, guess what I have been taking recently as an online course? I am taking the Harvard EDX program on the science of cooking. Mm. And okay. guess what the very first module was all about? A module about the modulus? As exactly correct. <laughs> it was about elasticity and why you care about it. But here is the important bit that we were missing. There was a motivation. When you cook food, when you denature it, you change the nature of the bonds and therefore you change the elasticity. If you happen to be an omnivore and you're interested in having a nice piece of juicy red meat, you don't want to overcook it, okay? Because the elasticity, when you start to denature the proteins and they start to squeeze on each other, they force out the liquid inside there, and they change the spacing in between them as part of the process. And so it's like, oh, wow, there's a really good motivation here. And not only that, they did something in this course, which I hope to bring uh, to try to bring to our classroom is that Young's modulus is a pressure. It has units of pressure. It's a it's a um, a stress over strain, and it has units of pressure, which is also units of energy per volume. Why is this cool? Because if you say that approximately any molecule within the structure that makes up the food has an energy of approximately KBT 
divided by an energy density of KBT divided by the volume it takes up, which we'll treat as a cube with length L cubed. You can take the Young's modulus, set it equal to KBT over L cubed, and you can get an estimate for how far the molecules are apart. And it comes out beautifully mm-hmm. on the order of nanometers. Mm-hmm. And when you denature your uh, material more, the length gets smaller. <laughs> and when it's when it's very elastic, the length is large. And it was just like, oh, wow, this is a great way to get elasticity back in there and spend some more time with it. And I'm excited to do that. And it's, it's very, very, of course, uh, IPLS type related material. So mm-hmm. I'm, yeah, sometimes things that may not work well i i i think they need to be re re-examined and in particular you have to have the right motivation behind it i think elasticity is a very important topic well and and motivation like my hope with that marshmallow one so for folks who aren't as familiar so it's basically taking a marshmallow and you compress it and you you can measure the the force that you are applying even without force sensors you can just put you know, like a block on top of the marshmallow and then put masses on top of that. So you know what force you're applying and you can see how far you squish it. So you're able to to make a study of stress versus strain. And and my, my hope had always been to then connect that to like compressing a bone mm-hmm. and, uh, and thinking of that there. And then we also did an extension one where I forget if it was you or Paul or a combination of them. It was about using gummy worms. Mm-hmm. And you have, I remember you got, you got from the a candy store, like the <laughs> huge gummy worms, which is the, they were absolutely amazing, uh, for using in the lab. And, and now you can talk about the stretch of say muscle or, or tendon. Mm-hmm. And so I, I always thought that was a really interesting, but I, I never, I never quite understood the, the physics and the anatomy and physiology together as well as I had hoped. So it, it never, I never quite got that off the ground the way I'd hoped there's still hope. Maybe some folks have done it already and it's on the living physics portal or, or maybe, yeah. maybe we're the ones who get it there. I don't know. So sort of add on to an answer for that, that question. I've, I've actually found it a really rewarding experience to try to build modeling labs for labs that don't exist. So like taking a stress strain idea, you know, I, I got squishing the marshmallow out of, I forget if this this found it online or if it was in a, in the physics teacher journal. And I said, how can I make this a modeling lab? Um, you know, how can I do that with, with stretching a gummy worm? How can we make a, a modeling lab? Well, you did make a modeling lab with, um, with the, the, the pressure sensor and putting the tube deeper and deeper underwater. Uh, you did a, a great modeling lab for PV equals NKBT uh, mm-hmm. with the pressure sensor and just uh, twisting a syringe onto it, which I thought like it was very like simple experiments to run, but such rich analysis that you could get into. So, you know, there's, there's really a rewarding aspect to to using this modeling approach and i don't like to do labs different ways now i'd like to tie up our conversation about your experiences and projects by reimagining the future what do you hope to see next in the world of physics education Hmm. yeah this is a tricky one um i feel as college instructors to some extent we're only as good as the clay that we get to work with and I know this may seem controversial, but I do feel No Child Left Behind left a lot of children, college students in particular, behind. And I partly think this may have be leading to the dysfunction that's taking uh, place in this country. I reimagine the future 
um, uh, in the following way that we need a national effort to get back to some basics in terms of critical thinking, um, in particular throughout these standardized assessments. I don't feel that they do us, I don't feel they're doing us any good. Uh, I, I think that it's important to preach and to practice having dignity and respect and communing, communicating with all our fellow human beings. This has obviously become uh, to the fore right now in colleges across the country. But I, I do feel that it's it's open to it's very important to be open minded, um, um, but it's it's still it has to be evidence based. You have to make decisions based on what actually is happening, and you know be be very open minded and not just let your opinions drive uh, you in in a particular direction. So that's what I'm uh, as far as reimagining the future. I'm I'm really hoping that we can as a country get back to the basics and in terms of the way that we collect evidence and evaluate it and then make decisions going forward. Um, well, and, and this is where I think uh, a model in instruction plays actually plays into that so much because it, it's all about here's some data. How can we make sense of it? How can we build a, a model to help us better understand the world around us? And, and maybe what we need more of in in any classroom modeling included would be how to take some data from the world and and try to make sense of it we build these critical thinking skills in and and model making and sense making from data we collect in the classroom but if there's important issues in the world could we could we kind of sneak those into the class as well and say well let, let's apply let's apply what we just learned about you know the constant velocity model to to this this data from from what we're I mean we could say it's like the COVID crisis uh, you know let, let's look at let's actually see if we can find some data and and try to make sense of it to think about it from from that perspective yeah well rate of infections uh, you can model very nicely based on statistics um, and that's what they're doing of course and 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 all the COVID data that's coming out there to understand oh my goodness look at how incredibly infectious it is. Um, but that's what they do. They, they're collecting this data and they're uh, examining these kinds of, uh, examining all the statistics coming from it to understand um, more about what's happening with uh, coronavirus. And that's just one example. You know, there, there are a lot of modelers that bring climate change into the classroom in order to explore different kinds of ideas there. There's, there's many different places that you can use it, but the bottom line is it's evidence-based, okay? Let's take a look at real stuff, not not things that we, we might feel is the way the world should be. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. So, if someone is interested in learning more about modeling instruction, what should they do? What What are the types of workshops that are currently available? I mean, I should. Uh, and it's sort of the caveat of what's usually available and uh -huh. what what is currently available because we're in still COVID times. <laughs> Well, I appreciate you ending off. I'm I'm assuming that we're coming to the end here. This is a nice softball question. <laughs> uh, the American Modeling Teachers Association, um, which I, I can send the link out to you. It's modelinginstruction.org has oodles of resources. Uh, lifetime membership is really inexpensive. And... Um, uh, just becoming a member to get access to the resources is fabulous. As far as workshops, they're 
they are having a combination of both face-to-face -face ones and virtual ones. For example, the one in Kennebunk, Maine, which has been run for many years, used to run a face-to-face -face one, and they've gone virtual for the last few years because um, uh, the situation of COVID. Um, but they have fabulous instructors who have gotten very good with this uh, virtual instruction and they provide you they actually send out hardware for you to use as part hmm. of the, um, mm -hmm. the workshop and so you do have both a combination anyways when you go to the modeling website they'll show you where the workshops are they're located all around the country okay from maine to um, california and occasionally they're out in hawaii as well um, if you need Ooh. a break, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but anyways, uh, yeah, um, that, that's that modelinginstruction.org is the place to go. Well, Jamie, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me, especially because it's late at night for you, it's mm -hmm. afternoon for me, but you're in Germany on sabbatical right now. So, mm -hmm. uh, so you're, you're pulling the late night shift. So thank you. It's been a real pleasure to have this, this conversation with you and to finally get to bring you onto the show. I really appreciate the opportunity, Bradley. And as I said, I've been listening to your podcast and it's like, ah, that's the reason why people do podcasts. It's really good fun. So I have been enjoying them tremendously and learning a lot too. So anyways, thank you so much for the opportunity to share my experiences specifically with modeling instruction. One thing we didn't get to touch on too much during this conversation was Jamie's incredible ability to come up with great experiments and mental models and get them quickly into his classroom. He's always playing and tinkering and so excited to share and discover. He was at the forefront of the circulatory system model that has become my favorite activity and the topic of episode six. Another model I love is the beach ball model of Brownian motion. Students throw tennis balls from all directions at a giant beach ball and you can actually quantify its movement and construct x squared equals 2dt. You can find links to the modeling instruction website as well as some of Jamie's awesome work, whether we talked about it or not, in the episode show notes. Just scroll down on your podcast app or go to physicsalive.com slash Jamie. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast so that you can stay up to date with each episode as it comes out. You can also find updates at Physics Alive on Twitter. That's a great place to comment on the episode and keep the conversation going. You can also reach me at brad at physicsalive.com. If you enjoy the show, leave a five-star rating on your podcast app. This will instantly download the entire modeling instruction curriculum into your brain. Or it will help more educators find the show. It's one of the two. A quick plug for my Patreon page. Producing a podcast is great fun. I love speaking with guests, and this way of serving the physics community fits well with my talents and interests. But producing podcast content is time-consuming and requires fees to maintain a website and podcast hosting services and requires equipment to produce great audio. If you find this podcast valuable, and if you have the means to help support the show, then please consider visiting patreon.com slash physicsalive. Thanks again for listening in, and I hope you've been inspired. Today's action step, I'll give you two choices. You can check out modelinginstruction.org, or explore one of Jamie's awesome classroom labs and activities. Please join me again for the next episode of Physics Alive. Until then, may you ever tap into your dream team of colleagues, and be well.